message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. few weeks we've seen how the gospel is not a you first message but a he first message for as the apostle John wrote we love him because he first loved us we've also seen how the love of God his very nature is a giving nature for God so loved the world he loved the world in this way he gave and in fact to receive from him is to receive his giving his loving nature but look at the state of the world we have a problem natural human wisdom which we will speak about today, looks at the state of the world and says, yes, we have a problem, all right. It's obvious that what we need has not been given, and so there cannot be a God who gives. But what I want to show you today is that the gospel reveals that God doesn't have a problem with giving. We have a problem with receiving. Our problem is that the natural mind cannot take in just how much God has given. We cannot take in scriptures like Romans 8.32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let me put that another way. If he has really given us his son, the one all things were created through and for, then what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians is true. If you are of Christ, then all that belongs to him belongs to you. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 3 from verse 21. You know, I think that little word all is the most disbelieved word in the Bible because to our natural minds it is most unbelievable. How could we have it all when our ears and our eyes, our logical minds, every sense we have in the natural can see every day, every day what we don't appear to have? No wonder in that same letter Paul told them that such statements sound so foolish to our natural minds that we have it all, that we need to receive the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. I think that's one of my most favorite scriptures, 1 Corinthians 2.12. That's what the Holy Spirit is given for, that we might know how much God has given freely. So I'm going to say some naturally unbelievable things today because I want to share again this beautiful gospel of God's grace. A gospel that is so naturally unbelievable that men have never stopped watering it down in an attempt to make it more appealing to the natural man, the religious man, who is convinced that no one can be that generous and whose pride cannot countenance being saved without him playing some starring role in it himself. It is not my job to water down this unbelievable message enough so that your natural mind or mind can take it in. Human wisdom, what Paul called the spirit of this world, has never been able to receive the gospel. The idea that God has come in human flesh in order to raise men up by his spirit and make them what the apostle Peter described as partakers of his divine nature. It was human wisdom that crucified Christ because they could not understand God's wisdom. As Paul declared, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had understood it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. The gospel is God's wisdom, 
which is foolishness to the natural mind and can only be understood by God's Holy Spirit giving that understanding. If I try and water this message down to make it more acceptable to human wisdom, then I end up sharing a message that does not need the Holy Spirit to open the understanding, to open the heart of the people hearing it. In other words, I end up sharing a message that brings no power of the Spirit with it, power to set people free from the wisdom of this world and all the fear and grasping that goes with that, power to set people free from living separated from God and bring them into a life of union with God in Christ. Now to preach such a gospel of power, we need to preach the gospel that 2,000 years later still sounds utter foolishness to the natural mind. And I will let the Apostle Paul tell you why when we listen to the opening remarks he made to the Corinthians. Now remember, the Corinthians at that time, they were Christians who had been seduced by the human wisdom all around them. And so they had started to disbelieve in the generosity of God. The result was they were beginning to live, in the words of Paul, like mere men, to live like people who needed to save themselves. They were beginning to live like and look like the world around them, people grasping for life because they'd lost sight of who they were and whose they were. Paul was not ashamed to preach this foolish message to them again because he knew from his experience that it carried the power of God, not only that the world needed, but that the church needed also. Listen to some of the things he said to them. Now I'm going to quote from his first letter where he has to start by reminding them that the very power of God to live the life of a child of God was carried to them not in a message that sounds wise to religious ears, but one that sounds absurd. He said this, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, because Paul knew that he dare not mix the gospel with human wisdom, then he knew that everywhere he preached this message, he could not water it down by adding to it conditions that would appeal to the pride of men, some things they had to do in order to become worthy of sharing in God's life. That's a good definition of religion, doing to become. Now that left him totally exposed to ridicule and rejection by anyone who was operating in natural human wisdom, which as we heard earlier, the rulers of this age rule by. So everywhere Paul goes, he knows that the greatest opposition to such a foolish message is going to come from the rulers in that place, both secular and religious. And if we look at the book of Acts, you will see that is exactly where the greatest opposition to the foolish gospel always comes from and still does. So how did knowing what lay ahead of him make Paul feel as he approached a new city determined to add nothing to the foolish message to make it more palatable, more acceptable to the religious, determined to preach only about a God who loved us so much that he gave to us everything he had in his son. Well, here is how he reminded the Corinthians of what that felt like. He wrote, And I came to you, brethren. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you, 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So I've spent some time now preparing you for the fact that what you're going to hear today and in the weeks to come will sound absurd, especially if you're someone who has great faith in the wisdom of our age or if you're religious. But I'm resigned to saying these things to anyone who will listen, whether outside or inside the church, because I have found this gospel of God's grace to be the only message that carries the power to set me free from myself and all my efforts to save myself. Over the last few weeks, we have seen that the gospel is not the message of what will be if you first, but the declaration of what is because he first. In other words, it is the declaration of what is true today, whether you believe it or not. But believing it or not is the difference between life and death, union with or separation from the life of God. Now I am confident that as we have seen, the Holy Spirit enables people to believe what is naturally unbelievable. But he does that by what the Bible calls witnessing with people, confirming to them that what they're hearing is true. It's hard to explain what that feels like, but most people are left saying something like, I don't know how, but right then I just knew that what he was saying was true. So if the Holy Spirit witnesses with us that something is true, can you see that for the power of the Spirit to be most at work, we need to be telling people what is true? Paul talked about the gospel he preached being accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit's power when he determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. In other words, Christ and him crucified is not a message of what will be, but of what is. Christ and him crucified is not a message of what will be, but of what is. Every time we make the gospel a message of what will be, we take the power from the message because the Holy Spirit doesn't come to confirm what may be, what could be, if, you, but what is, because he. Now to see such power again when we preach the gospel, we need to determine, as Paul determined, to preach only of what is and not water it down by mixing it with what may be. Now if you want to give people uh, good advice on things they should do and things they should not do that will help them in their faith, well that's wonderful. Only do the world a big favor. Stop calling that the gospel. Stop mixing that advice into or adding it onto the gospel because the Holy Spirit witnesses to what is, not what may be. And if you keep mixing the good news with good advice, you'll end up with a gospel that doesn't liberate people from themselves, but brings them into a lifetime of self-effort. You'll end up with a gospel that doesn't make them radiant, but makes them religious. A gospel that doesn't bring them into dependency on Christ, but a dependency on church. That's a powerless gospel. You know, when Paul saw his beloved Galatians becoming religious again, he knew exactly what had gone wrong. Someone had come along and added a little human wisdom, a little advice, a little religion to the message being preached. And they had been left with something that sounded like the gospel, but was in Paul's words, no gospel at all. Because to make the gospel about what men need to do, in the words of Paul, empties the cross of its power. He described that as no gospel at all because he knew there was no power in any message 
that doesn't impart to people Christ's mind on who they are, in order that they may enter in by faith to live as who he declares them to be, sons of God in Christ. For faith can only rest in what is, not what might be. Let me put that another way. As recorded in Genesis, right from the beginning, when God speaks, when God says, let it be, there is. So when God speaks to you his name for you, a name given in Christ before the foundation of the world, there is such power in his word to let it be that it is. In that moment, what you hear is who you are. And the faith to live as who you are in God's eyes comes by the hearing of his word to you on who you are. That's why it's so important for believers, those who are in Christ, not to be sitting for years under messages that effectively say to them, this is who you could be one day if you. Because such a message, such a gospel is no gospel at all, because it can never bring you into God's mind on who you are today in Christ. For God's mind on anyone who is in Christ is that they are, not will be, but are an entirely new creation. For old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Now, did you hear right at the heart of that statement? There's that little word again that nobody can believe, the little word, all. The little word we can't believe without the Holy Spirit. Notice also the tense. In Christ, all things have become new. Have become, that's past tense, because to live in Christ is to live from what is, not what may be. That's how the early church overcame the might of the Roman Empire. Those rulers of the world at that time could only watch dumbfounded as countless Christians went to their deaths singing because their hope had been established in what is, not what might be. Think of Paul and Silas, whipped, chained in a dark dungeon and singing with great joy because their hope is not in what might be if they pray long enough or sing long enough but their hope is in what is. Now all that is by way of introduction because I want to finish this week and continue next week to speak of what is in terms of what is because it has been so since before the foundation of the world. <laughs> if you think what you've heard so far is foolish, you ain't heard nothing yet. What I want to show you now is that Christ and him crucified and all that means for your life and mine was never our heavenly father's reaction to what happened in the garden of Eden as if Adam's sin caught God by surprise and he had to come up with a plan to respond to what a man did. God's purpose and grace were not given to us as a response to what Adam did. They were given to us in Christ before time began. And I'm gonna show you that now in scripture because when you begin to see that God's purpose and grace were not given to us as a response to what Adam did, then you can begin to see that his purpose and grace were not given to us in response to what we did either. Let me put that another way, the way the Bible says it. His calling, his name for us, is not according to our works, how we have lived our lives. Now those statements sound quite extraordinary, which by the way is always a good sign that you're hearing the gospel, because the gospel of God's grace has not one ordinary thing to say to you. So I want to bring you to the passage of scripture this morning where we can hear everything I've just said being spoken by a father to his spiritual son. And if you remember last week, we saw that it is in preaching the gospel as a father, not a manager, that sons are birthed, not mere workers. 
So I want to read to you from Paul's second letter to his son in the Lord, Timothy, from verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. I love those verses. Now notice the words, revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus came to reveal something. You can only reveal something that is. Let me say that again. You can only reveal something that is. Question, so what is that Jesus came to reveal? Answer, God's purpose and grace, his calling on your life, his name for you in Christ. That is because it has already been given. And Christ and him crucified reveals to us God's name for us. Because at the cross, the Father's view and opinion on you was revealed, declared there, you are the one I love as I love my son the one I speak to and give to as a father gives to his son, the one I withhold nothing from, even my own life. This is the name that he gives on all who will receive it, can live by it and live in it by the power of the Spirit. Now remember I said that natural human wisdom looks at the state of the world and says, it's obvious that what we need has not been given and so there cannot be a God who gives. But the question you see is not, will God give? That question was answered 2,000 years ago through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Christ revealed that there never was a question in God's mind about whether to give himself to us. The only reason that man thought there was such a question was because the devil, the father of lies, planted it there. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Only believing in what is true sets you free from believing in what is not true. That original lie that God is withholding himself from you. So you need to become like God by yourself. The Bible is another name for by yourself, death. And sure enough, the moment Adam took one bite out of that do-it-yourself life, the Bible says he died because to separate yourself from God is death. So the truth that is, the truth that because God has already given, there now is a life prepared for you, a life with Christ and God. That sets you free from something and sets you free to something. The truth of what is, the truth of the gospel, sets you free from that original lie and the power and the consequences of that lie, sin and death. And so sets you free to receive this life prepared for you this life with Christ in God. The question is, will you? See, the truth is, there has never been a question over God's willingness to give. From first to last, the gospel declares him to be a God who freely gives because he doesn't give according to our works, our life, but according to the riches of his mercy and grace, according to his life. The question has never been, will God give? The question has always been, 
will you receive? Will you receive what he has already given? Now, according to the scripture we have just read in 2 Timothy, the life God has prepared for you was given before time began. The Holy Spirit revealed to Paul that God's purpose and grace given to us in Christ preceded Adam's sin and therefore ours too, because it was given before even time began, or as some translations put it, before the foundation of the world. That's how the Bible is able to describe Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Let me put that another way. Christ was given to us before time began because God's nature is love, is eternally unchanging. God is love. The gospel is the news of what is because of who God is, not what may be if your behavior changes God's mind on you. Newsflash, you aren't powerful enough to change who God is. He is the one whose love for you is not determined by your love for him because his love is not self-centered. God's mind has been made up about you since before the foundation of the world. Christ and him crucified is the revelation of his mind on you, his opinion on you, his name for you. Remember it? The one I love as I love my son. The one I speak to and give to as a father gives to his son. The one I withhold nothing from, even my own life. That's his name for you. You're the one he loves so much that he gave all he had to you in Christ. And so that you could receive the fullness of his love, he made sure he didn't give to you in response to your life, according to your works, but gave to you before you were even born so that his love for you would never be limited by, never be shackled to your performance. Because that is how a father or a mother loves, isn't it? We don't wait to see how our children turn out before we love them or name them. Now to the religious mind, it is foolishness to call God your father, which is why no man can do it but by the Spirit of God. You will find no earthly religion that calls God father. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, because man's thinking is based on earthly record, theirs, and God's thinking on an eternal record, his. That's why no man can receive the knowledge of God apart from God's own spirit, for his thoughts are as high above our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. So when God speaks to you, he doesn't speak to you according to your earthly record, but according to his eternal grace and purpose given to you in Christ. Just ask Moses or Gideon or Mary or how about Saul of Tarsus? All who were addressed by God with a name they had never heard anyone call them before. You know, he speaks to you in such a way that it doesn't leave you where you are, the victim of your circumstances, the product of your earthly record. He speaks to you in a way that calls you out of that life and into the one he has prepared for you. He speaks to you, he names you, according to his purpose and grace given to you in Christ before you were even born. Why? For the same reason that when you were an infant, your parents never spoke to you as a dog, even though you behaved the way a dog behaved. They spoke to you as who they knew you to be, even when neither you nor your behavior agreed with that name. They spoke to you that way because they were calling you upwards into maturity. So too, when your heavenly Father speaks to you, he calls you according to what he has given to you in Christ. 
in order that you would live that life, the life given in Christ. By the way, that's how you should always test prophecy. If a word is from the Lord, it should draw you out of yourself, not throw you back onto yourself. This means that although your heavenly Father has great compassion on where you have ended up, although he will meet you in your pit as he did Gideon, he cannot and he will not speak to you as a victim. You will get compassion from your heavenly Father, but you will not get sympathy. Let me explain the difference. Sympathy is only able to say, poor you, that's terrible what they did to you. Compassion says, what they did to you is terrible, but that's not who you are. You see, sympathy is content to leave you where it finds you. Compassion seeks to lift you into a better place. So I'm saying that God does not leave you to name yourself according to your life and to live that life. No child names themselves. Every child is named by their father and named after not their own life, but are named before they have done anything good or bad. No father should relate to his child primarily through the child's record. And that is exactly what Luke 15 tells us in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, where he shows us God the Father, that he does not relate to us in that way either. The father in that parable, he refused to relate to either of his sons through their records. It was the sons who both tried to relate to their father through their record. By the end of that parable, Jesus describes one son as saying to the father, because of the life I have led, I am not worthy to be given entrance to your house. While the other son at the end of the parable is saying to the father, because of the life I have led, I am the one who is worthy of your house. The father is simply pictured in treating both to enter into his love for them as sons, not workers. We enter into the life of a perfectly loved son by seeing how perfectly the father loves us, Christ and him crucified. He loves us even to the giving of his own life. And the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to see who he is by the light of the gospel of what is. Through the preaching of this gospel, the Father is still every day going out into the highways and byways of this world and entreating men and women to enter into the life he has prepared for them by receiving the calling, the name he gave to them before time began and revealed through Christ and him crucified. And I wanna finish by believing in the power of the Holy Spirit right now to do what I cannot do. Open the eyes and ears of men and women listening to this message whom God is calling to see what is by the hearing of what is their name in Christ. So I declare to you what the Father is saying today to all those he is calling into the life he has prepared for them a life hidden with Christ and God. You are the one I love as my son, the one I speak to and give to as a father gives to his son, the one I withhold nothing from, even my own life. You are the one I have saved and called with a holy calling, not according to your works, your life, but according to my own purpose and grace, which was given to you in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, through the proclamation of this truth of who God is, the Father who has given all he has, I break the power of the lie in your life that God has abandoned you by declaring to you the truth that there is no question of whether God will give to you, for that question was answered 2,000 years ago. 
there now remains only one question. Will you receive from him the truth of what is, the truth of who you are because of who he is? He is the God who cannot separate loving from giving and so loved you in this way by giving you his son that you may believe in him and not perish but have everlasting life. And I declare that if you believe this in your heart to be true, then you have already passed from death to eternal life because no man can believe this unless the Holy Spirit is given to them. Now before you lies the most wonderful life, a life of growing up as one perfectly loved, what the Bible calls growing up into Christ. Now you are about to discover the truth of Jesus' promise when he said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God bless you.